This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns, and a happy new year to all. On this episode, our final for 2021, The Wigs delve into the latest case on Julian Assange's fate, a man who is inching closer to facing prosecution in the United States over his involvement in the WikiLeaks publication. Then on the local stage, a case which finally quashes the controversy over the nature of an appeal against conviction from the local court to the district court in New South Wales, followed by a look at what's been happening in the highest courtroom of the land. Are women justices interrupted more than their male counterparts? And who are interrupting the culprits? And then, of course, we've got fun things to top off the show. This episode was broadcast live on Twitter Spaces, so let us know if you'd like to join the Wigs live again in the future. Just send us a note on Facebook or on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Wigs. It is fantastic to be here for the final episode of 2021. This fantastic little production that we all like to participate in every once in a while. I'd like to introduce the Wigs themselves, Miss Felicity Graham. So great to be with you at Jim at Mintz. Thank you. So great to be with you too. Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon to you, Mr. Emmanuel. I can't do anything <laughs> as you've already expanded on the name. And uh, remotely via Dubbo, I believe. Hello, your ex-worship. Hey, Jim. Hey, Brian. No, no, I'm not in Dubbo. I'm actually Sydney. I arrived this morning, but I'm a, I made casual contact or a close contact Lovely. or some bloody thing. I was at a party last Friday with someone who now has COVID, so I'm getting tested and not coming into the studio, unfortunately. What a bummer. Anyway, Mm, I've got a beer here. I'm happy. I'm on my own, but not really. Okay, great, great. Well, at least you're here in spirit or, or, or whatever. Uh, Mr. Emmanuel Kukashian putting his hand up before proceedings begin. I'm just just noting that there's a step that needs to happen right now. Please. From his great. Yes, yes. Go for it. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, what kind of a host am I? Final show of the year. We've got to pop the champers. So um, thank you. Go, Oops, thank sorry. you, Miss Felicity Graham. Just and I just want to ta- note, you know, take note, obviously, uh, we're a little jittery tonight because we are on Twitter Spaces, live on Twitter Spaces. So thank you, all those lovely people who are listening in on the Twitter sphere. Your presence is noted. And it is welcome. And thank you for Instagram and breathing <laughs> problems. And uh, you will be able to participate in asking questions of the wigs and they will be broadcast on the show because this is the show. And uh, when that will actually exactly happen, I'm not quite sure, but I just want to take... So do we have any listeners yet? Yeah, I just want to note Ed. Thank you for the peace symbol. It is noted. And uh, it is uh, on the record. So thank you, Ed. Um, so, yeah. So Ed doesn't have, have any sort of a conflict of interest, does it? He's not some sort of a ring in. <laughs> no, no, no. Just a, just a random listener, Ed. Thank you for joining in and, and giving us your feedback. We really appreciate it. Um, Steve. Cheers to oh, Ed. Cheers to Ed. Cheers. And cheers to cheers. Steve. And, and cheers to Steve there it is. and the week. So absent friends. Yeah, there we go. Absent friends. And so, without further ado, we're going to begin our topics like we do every week's episode. And we're starting off with Mr. Emmanuel Kokosherian. I have no idea what you're talking about tonight. Please enlighten us all. I don't think I've been this nervous since my Supreme Court YouTube appearance. Oh, I have to say, it's, it's, it's a bit jittery. <laughs> so, we're talking about, or I'm talking about rather, the judgment 
of the High Court of Justice, the Queen's Bench, uh, in the matter of the Government of the United States of America and Julian Paul Assange that was handed down on the 10th of December this year. Mm. Um, listeners of the Weeds will know that we've touched on this topic a number of times um, and uh, basically this thing goes back to December 2010 when Sweden made an application for the extradition of Mr Assange from the UK for alleged sex crimes. Um, That extradition order was made. Uh, Two years later, there was a rejection to his appeal, but Assange skipped bail and was held up in the Ecuadorian, I think, embassy for many, many years until 11 April 2019. Um, After that time, he did some jail time for being... Um, 50 weeks imprisonment is how long he did after being convicted for breaching his bail, which is an astonishing amount of time given how long he'd spent in that embassy. Uh, And after that, there was further extradition proceedings before a district court judge, whose name I can't pronounce, Baraitza. Anyway, and on the 4th of January this year, 2021... Uh, she discharged, her honour discharged Julian Assange from the extradition that was sought by the United States. She was satisfied, quote, that his mental condition is such that it would be oppressive to extradite him. And that's one of the tests that's laid out in the UK Extradition Act 2003 in Section 91. If it's oppressive to extradite you because of your mental health, you can't be extradited. Okay. So... We, we're now a almost a complete year after that decision. Julian Assange remained during that period of time, bail refused, uh, and the USA comes effectively on appeal to the uh, High Court of Justice uh, and argues various grounds for his extradition to occur. That is to say, suggesting that the district court judge made some mistakes. Um now, I'm not going to go through all of the allegations. Some of them were factual and... Uh, sorry, when I say allegations, I mean, I'm not going to go through all of the grounds of appeal that were put forward on behalf of the United States. But um, the one that... W- I'll, I'll only really go to the one that was granted, the one that was found. And that was effectively that uh, the United States... Let me, let me take a step back. So... Uh, the district court judge basically found that one of the reasons, and according to the High Court, this was the key reason for the finding that it would be oppressive to extradite him and his mental health would be such that he might commit suicide, was because of the type of custody that he would be subjected to upon his arrival in the United States. And that would effectively be some sort of yeah, be really hardcore solitary confinement um, and really hardcore type of imprisonment, right? Well, why? Because treated like a, a special... Is it like a terrorist type? Yeah. Of, okay. Like, he was going to be locked up as if effectively in... Well, I mean, they sent terrorists to Guantanamo, so I don't think it was going to be quite okay. that bad. Right, right, right. But it yeah. was going to be of the worst order. And that combined with his mental health condition was such that he was a serious suicide risk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, in the spirit of our subject to come, can I just interrupt you, Manny? <clears throat> Typical. Yep, go on. So, the various One different- interruption by a woman. Oh, yeah, <laughs> someone's, someone's got to catch count. <laughs> and, and how ironic. <laughs> mm. 
Uh, I did wait my turn to politely interrupt, I should say. Mm. But Steve just interrupted you. (laughs) (laughs) So the judge looked at various different types of conditions of confinement that might apply, it not being a certainty that he would face any particular form of pre-trial or post-trial custodial arrangement. And And so she looked at the seven different categories... Um, which applied in a particular adult detention centre that was thought to be relevant. Administrative segregation, sorry, general population, which is the first, which would be presumably the least restrictive form of confinement. Administrative segregation, disciplinary segregation, pre-hearing segregation, medical segregation, protective custody, critical critical care mental health unit, and then... Another category which is referred to by abbreviation as SAMS or Restrictive Special Administrative Measures and that was one of the circumstances that was particularly considered in relation to Mr Assange. But it really struck me that that particular label is so inadequate Mm. to describe the reality of what that confinement would mean. It's really... Just such a gross euphemism for what is a system of quite a brutal uh, condition of confinement cramped in a concrete cell by yourself in isolation, uh, sensory deprivation, additional restrictions that deny the individual almost any connection to the human world. So they're prohibited um, from contact or communication with all but a handful of approved individuals then there's a secondary restriction on any individuals that are approved so that they can't um, discuss with others the circumstances of the confinement or the person such that you're really just so cut off from the world uh, and deprived of what is so basic to human Life and connection and indeed, I- you know, human dignity. Well, of course, of course. Steve, you there? Yeah, yeah I'm here. Yep, mate. Enlighten us. What do you think? We're doing a live. I've got to try something <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was sort of interested, and I mean, obviously, this is an appeal court judgment, but I just couldn't see any discussion about why he would possibly warrant that sort of confinement. No, and which I thought was interesting just in the context of discussing what that actually means. No, and we'll Obviously get to talking to be about on the, the card, he'd suffer it, but we'll get to talking about the assurances issue. Yeah. But mm. that seemed to only go so far because there could be an intervening act almost immediately in the future to operate to expose him to that form of custody. Yeah, so, all right, so let, let's, let, let's, let's keep going. It. Let's keep going. So, as I said, there's a number of grounds of appeal and one of the grounds, the ground that was upheld, ground two, was having decided that the threshold for discharge under the section was met, the judge ought to have notified the USA of her provisional view to afford it the opportunity of, of offering assurances to the court. That is to say, in effect, the judge forms the view that the type of incarceration that's contemplated or may be imposed upon him uh, gives rise to this risk. She should have told the USA that's what she was thinking about, so that they could write her a little. They could write a note saying, "You know, we're not going to do that." 
And in so fact, just before you talk about how the reasons on that money, yeah, I thought it was really weird that in the appeal judgment they set out that that is the appeal ground. Yeah, but they also seem to set out that she served her judgment in draft on the party. Yeah, it's, she did. Yeah. Now, why wouldn't that have been the opportunity for the states to respond? I, I don't know. I mean, I, and the, I mean, I was going to go to that. The, what I I don't know why that doesn't account for an opportunity. It, to my mind, it's not yeah. explained in the judgment. But also, why should they be given that opportunity? I mean, you know, the evidence is the evidence. You know what's going on in the course of argument. Why should you be given an opportunity at all? Well, they chose below or before the first instance judge to run their case on the basis that these conditions of confinement did not amount to oppression. They chose to run their case in that way. If they were live to the issue... I really think they had the opportunity to put on evidence or give such assurances as arose from the the allegation of oppression that they were having to meet. And, and, and I mean, mm. there were shrinks who were psychologists, psychiatrists called for both sides that, give ev- that gave evidence on these issues. And in fact, that was some of the grounds of appeal that were rejected is that, you know, that, that her honour ought not to have accepted the evidence of a particular psychiatric expert, for example, um, that her honour erred in her overall assessment of the evidence of the risk of suicide and so on. So all of this stuff was at issue and it just seemed they weren't, prepared to give the assurance there. Now, I, unfortunately, mm. I didn't have enough time to look into this, but I find the provision of draft judgments itself an odd thing, which is to say, why should a judge show their hand mm. to the extent of a draft judgment? Is that an American thing? What well, is the UK. Oh, sorry, yeah. So, 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 yeah. so uh, I find that odd of itself, but having been provided that, to then be given a further opportunity... In a high in a higher court, effectively to run your case again, I mean, it goes against all the principles as I've understood them of, of you know finality. Mm. Um, for a man mm. who's been and, and we're talking about a year has passed since the original judgment and the appeal judgment. Mm. So the court mm. sort of addressed that issue, at paragraph forty-five of the decision, where they said extradition proceedings are not private law proceedings but a process through which solemn treaty obligations are satisfied in the context of a framework which ensures that a requested person is provided with proper safeguards. And then they go on to say, when extradition is resisted on grounds which suggests that the requested person will be exposed to conditions, for example, of detention, trial or medical facilities, which place a bar on extradition, but which may be remedied by suitable assurances, the requesting state should generally be provided with an opportunity to provide them and have them tested. So they do sort of, I guess, engage with this idea that extradition proceedings, although dealt with by a court, are this quite different creature of proceedings not perhaps so connected to the principles that ordinarily apply in court proceedings like a, like the principle of finality and you know run your case first time round with all your evidence taking all your points and appellate avenues being limited accordingly I mean I accept that I noted that paragraph as I searched this judgment to try and figure out what their justification is. Let's assume that that proposition is right. At what point do we say, and this I think was your point, Stephen, is that they were given a draft judgment. What other circumstance do they need? What other opportunity do they need? It starts really... I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to go up to 
the next level. We go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, no, this isn't enough. And they go, okay, well, how about if we do this? I mean, where, where do we... Where does the opportunity for the respondent or the defendant to test the evidence that's been put, to have all that done when this when these assurances are being done on appeal? And again, I, I note the year extra that he spent in custody. Mm, like so it's, December, it's marks, December marks the one-year anniversary of his... Well, it's all but one. January something will January, be the one-year anniversary of the decision right. to effectively to bar his extradition. So he ought to have been free. Yes. Right? And so the assurances they gave were like, you know, we're not going to lock him up in the worst sort of custody. If he wants to uh, and he loses, you know, and his sentence is found guilty, we'll let him be sentenced in Australia. Sorry, serve his sentence in Australia. Mm. Uh, No guarantee that the Australian government would permit him to be sentenced in Australia mm. uh, but this court seemed to think that is the appeal court seemed to think that that didn't matter should be um, right. the assurance was given yes should be right um, and as as Felicity uh, 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 referred to earlier it's not guaranteed like the assurances are are, are subject to him not uh, well maybe Flick you want to speak to this that they're not that, that there's a chance effectively that he does something. The United States says, "Well, you you know you've gone beyond what our insurance covers. Assurance covered. So now we're going to put you into solitary confinement." Mm. Yeah. So, for example, assurance number one is the United States will not impose special administrative measures or SAMs on Mr. Assange pre-trial or post-conviction. This undertaking is subject to the condition that the United States retains the power to impose SAMs on Mr. Assange in the event that after entry of this assurance, he was to commit any future act that met the test for the imposition of a SAM pursuant to um, the particular What defines that future act? Well, Well, that's exactly right. They didn't go into it at all Mm. and didn't engage in any process about whether... Sorry, Steve. I wonder if that's just the judgment, right? Because these assurances were given effectively as like a form of new evidence on appeal. And it's not clear from the judgment whether at the hearing there was an inquiry into what it exactly means or not. But I would have thought having this huge caveat, which is unless something occurs that warrants the latter imposition, I mean, who makes that decision? To what standard um, is that decision sort of judged by? Well, and that, that's what the, sort of appeal rights does he has in relation to that? I mean, it's such a broad caveat that it's basically meaningless. And that, that's the problem with doing it at this stage, is because if that had happened in the court below, he might have been able to adduce evidence about what sort of things would amount to an apparent breach... Uh, or, or something that might lead to those measures being op- imposed. Mm. And the risk of that may have been such that Her Honour's original findings may have still come, you know, would have, may still have been reasonable in light of the assurances given. So... Yeah. And the other just thing... Just going back so to Assange, that procedural fairness... Oh, sorry, Stevie. Yeah, I was just going to say, going back to that procedural fairness kind of issue, they talk about that in the judgment when they talk about you know, whether they should admit these assurances. And they talk about how it would be not practicable to expect the the state involved to give every type of assurance in anticipation of primary arguments failing, which is sort of a way of saying that procedural fairness 
couldn't be sort of accommodated practically or whatever. But in the context of the issues in this case, where the primary issue in this respect was the suicide risk and, you know, whether his mental illnesses combined with the prison conditions would cause that to occur... How could this question of assurances not have been squarely raised I and agree. therefore should have been addressed at first instance? It just it seems is to be so obvious. It, well, it's not hypothetical so at all. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not impossible either, I mm. wouldn't have thought. Yeah. And maybe there was an evidentiary hearing on appeal where they raised these issues about, look, that caveat is way too broad. We're going to need to cross-examine officials. We're going to need to question by what standard any future conduct's going to be sort of judged. But, geez, it's not apparent from the judgment. No. Um, one and of the, the reasoning's thin on it. One of the ways that Assange did try to challenge the assurances was to say that he had rebutted the presumption that they were made in good faith on the basis that there was some evidence that he had put forward in response in the appeal proceedings to the effect that the US had previously breached an assurance in a case of a person, Haroon Aswat. And the court dealt with that by saying, we don't accept that the circumstances in that case lead to a conclusion that the US did breach their assurances. And what they say is in relation to the explanation given by the US relating to that case, this is at 53 of the judgment, they say that explanation given by the USA in a particular diplomatic note shows the need for a requested person, in other words, someone like Mr Assange, to consider with care the precise terms of an offered assurance, but it does not show that the USA acted in breach of an assurance. In other words, the assurance given to Mr Assange in its precise terms, looking at it very carefully, really doesn't give him much assurance at all because some future state of affairs means that Mm. the US retains its power to detain him as they please according to the most strict um, terms of confinement that is permitted in that jurisdiction. Uh, so, I mean, there is... And he's a mentally ill person, right, on their findings. So, yeah. what's this conduct that might lead to the assurance not applying? Yeah. Mm. It could be some omission he does. It could be some positive act. Who's going to judge it? Is it like the governor of the prison? Mm. So, I mean, the court could have set a standard, right? Like, the court, at first instance, could have said, for example... I'm not minded to accept this assurance unless, for example, there's an assurance that it will be a judge who decides if there's some future act that warrants the Mm. special measures being imposed. But I'm not going to make my ruling subject to some prison official in America. Mm. Like, there's all sorts of ways you can sort of stiffen it, but it just seems like it's been thrown in at the appellate stage and it's no protection at all. There, is, there was authority that they cited to the effect that they can accept late assurances, mm. even on appeal. So that, mm. that, they're not making that up, as it were. No, and it goes to things like, for example, are they doing it for a tactical advantage, that they're withholding the assurance initially and then giving it late? And they found, the, the court in this case found that there was no such circumstance. It wasn't that the US had 
withheld it for some tactical advantage. That's where it comes back to the point, Stevie, you were making about how, you know, it's not hypothetical, but the court found, well, no, they can't be expected to make all of these potential assurances contingent on hypothetical circumstances Mm. and um, they doubted the practicability of requiring that. Mm. I sort of question the extent to which prison conditions to this level of detail are the appropriate subject matter for this sort of assurance. I mean, you can understand an assurance to be along the lines of he won't get the death penalty or the prosecution won't seek life. You can or, sort of understand the how Australian those types of assurances... Assurance. The assurance that he'll serve yeah, his sentence exactly. in Australia. Yeah, exactly. He can apply and we will consent we will to consent. transfer to Australia. Yeah. yeah but I mean, an assurance yeah. along the lines of he won't get special administrative measures unless he does something in the future that means that, that, you know, he can. I mean, what does that really mean? It's so broad as to be meaningless because it's, it's wholly contingent upon the discretion of some unknown prison official. Well, one of the things that was submitted on behalf of Assange was that the, the finding, the judge's findings of a high risk of suicide uh, was not, in effect, related to the special administrative measures. It was the fact of the extradition itself would be oppressive, giving rise to the risk of suicide. And they just rejected that outright. Um, mm. And so, and, and I think that goes to your point, Stephen, which is, well, at what point does it just become every, you know, at some point prisons operate as they operate and you've got to take them as they come. So, yeah. yeah. Probably, it's probably worth talking about some of that case law that's discussed in the judgment about when does a suicide risk become oppressive? Because it's kind of interesting. They talk Mm. about it's not just the fact of a suicide risk. There has to be this test met, which is that it's the aggravation of a mental illness or condition leading to a suicide risk, which means that it won't be a willed act, i.e. it'll be a mental illness or condition that sort of overbears their will. Mm. Um, so you can't just, for example, say, if I'm extradited to the UK on these offences, my life will be so horrible that I'll commit suicide. You, you, you sort of have to prove that it will be effectively a non-willed act, which mm. in his case was borne out by, I think it was a combination of Asperger's syndrome, autism and PTSD, I think. And severe and depression. And how that would interact. And severe depression. Which and how had they would, psychotic... Would um, episodes associated with it on one of the experts' findings. Yeah. Yeah. We are talking about USA versus Assange. Uh, if anyone listening on Twitter Spaces want to put their hand up and ask a question before we move on to topic two, that would be fantastic. Back to you, Emmanuel Kukasharian. One thing that's worth noting is that, um, and I won't go back through them all, but I won't go back through them in detail, but the case below had a lot of problems. That is to say, Assange's lawyers had very many concerns, very objections raised, arguments made yeah. and so on, that at least to the outside observer reading press releases and press reports on what was going on, um, at least concerned me as to how that case was conducted. And those were... No, so there's no... It, it appears that there was no procedure in effect for a notice of contention to be filed. Exactly. No cross-appeal. No cross-appeal. Right? Mm. So he ran so many grounds below. He lost on all of them. So he, he ran 
that the US-UK extradition treaty forbids extradition for political offences with the consequence that the court lacked jurisdiction. He ran that the allegations against him, that's the criminal allegations relating to WikiLeaks, did not meet the dual criminality test. Mm. He ran that it would be unjust or oppressive by reason of the passage of time. He ran that it was barred by reason of extraneous conditions, barred because it would breach the convention, violating various different rights to a fair trial, etc., freedom of expression. Uh, he ran an abusive process ground. And, yeah, the court just dealt with that so quickly, didn't they? That appeals they to like- Section 105 of the Act... Um, sorry, that's the that's the provision under which the US appealed and that the representatives for Assange said that if that appeal ex- succeeds, they would then in turn seek to appeal under Section 103, challenging each of the conclusions adverse to Assange. And then uh, basically they said uh, that the Act does not make provision for a cross-appeal. In these circumstances, I thought they and said something like it court. might. I thought they said something like it might, and that question might be more fully explored in a different case. Or yeah, so they heard. So there's a separate judgment. Um, yeah, it says this. It says those representing Mr. Assange is at paragraph 23. Yep. It made clear that if the appeal succeeds, he in turn would seek to appeal pursuant to section blah by challenging each of the conclusions adverse to him reached by the judge. That position was explained on 11 August 2021 at the oral application for permission, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then written argument that the 2003 Act does not make provisions for cross-appeal in these circumstances was accepted by the court, and there's another judgment. So... So they say... We've heard argument on the USA appeal alone. We note that in Government of Turkey and Tanis, a 2021 decision, Jeremy Johnson, Justice Jeremy Johnson, indicated in an obiter dictum his provisional view that a respondent to an appeal could re-argue all the grounds on which he lost to show that the overall outcome would have been the same, even if the appeal grounds succeed. We've heard no argument on this point. It may call for full argument in a suitable case. It's just bizarre. So why wouldn't this case be suitable? <laughs> right. I mean, Precisely. She's made a mistake on their reasoning in one respect, but her findings in every other respect are immunised from review. Except they also only found that her decision was wrong on the basis of the new information raised by the assurances because they rejected, I think, didn't they, money, the other grounds. So the grounds attacking the way she dealt with the psychiatric evidence, that was rejected. The way that she dealt with kind of the test for considering this prediction around suicide, that was rejected. Um, So they only dealt with it on that new information basis. Oh, plus they said she should have given them notice of her decision, but she apparently did that with the draft judgment. So, so. And look, ultimately... I was sort of wondering... Guys, too. I was wondering about that draft judgment point. I wonder if draft reasons are provided for a limited purpose, like to allow the parties to identify errors of law or something like that. Or spell And then not the opportunity... Or, yeah, like typographical slip slip type things. I wonder if they're not the opportunity to request more hearing time on the grounds of procedural fairness mm. issues. 
Yeah, I, I because, just yeah, it seems odd. I mean, it seems odd that upon getting a draft in circumstances where she's found that these conditions will be too harsh and therefore it's oppressive, that you wouldn't then be expected to put on a notice of motion and say, look, we can meet these concerns. Mm. I mean, otherwise, the first instance hearing, it just becomes a trial run. It's precisely what it does. And, and I mm. mean, in circumstances where there was such argument about this precise point, and I accept what the court says is that Assange ran a whole heap of points, but there was a lot of argument about this point in the court below. There was findings made about it. It just gives you the chance to say, well, we'll try and get him on this and avoid giving the assurances. Mm. And then, yeah, oh, well, we'll also give it later. That mm. part of the judgment was creepy, I thought, where they said, yeah. in, you know, in the context of talking about whether the assurances have come too late, they said something like, look, the reality is that he argued every point. He argued every point. So how could they possibly have met every point? Seems to be what they're saying. Hmm. It's bizarre, isn't it? (laughs) Except if you look at his grounds that he ran below, only some of them would call for assurances or or the possibility of assurances because, you know, whether or not the court has jurisdiction, well, the US can't give any assurances relevant to that question, whether the UK court has Hmm. jurisdiction to extradite. Um, You know, similarly, the dual criminality test. So, Steve, you've run a few extradition matters. That's that's where you've got to show that the offence or the conduct alleged by the offences in the extradition notice would be a crime in the local jurisdiction as well as being a crime in the foreign jurisdiction, right? So, that's not something that would call for assurances. Yeah, it varies according to treaties. But you've got to basically show that, that that conduct, the conduct that your extradition is sought for, would be a criminal offence to the requisite degree of seriousness, which is normally like 12 months or two years imprisonment in the country that you're seeking extradition from. That's basically the upshot of it. Yeah, so that wouldn't call for assurances. Then his grounds no, in relation to unjust or oppressive by reason of the passage of time, again, query whether that... that they did put on some evidence that he would be entitled to a speedy trial within 70 days of yeah, that being extradited. What does that mean? How but do you get a trial within 70 days on crimes like this? I don't know. And Assange's um, case... Like a fast-track trial or something. Well, they've, yeah. had, they've had, what, 13 years... Well, Assange's case said was that, no, 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 it's going to be a very long period of pre-trial detention because he's going to be making many preliminary challenges in the proceedings. So that's just fast. He'll probably go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. He'll go to the... He'll have all these jurisdiction arguments, constitutional arguments. It's not going to happen within 70 days. No. I mean, that must be some sort of process guarantee there. Sure. But... That would not be enlivened, I wouldn't have thought, in this case. Yeah, I agree. And so, query what assurances has to do with that. Well, I think the point is, the point is, they are not going to delay it. Sure, okay. Mm. But, you know, that's pretty straightforward. They can give that assurance or say that. Yeah. It's, It's not such a hypothetical or difficult thing for them to meet at first instance. And then, really, that just leaves the, um, the suicide issue, I think. Yeah. We can have him convicted in a week, Your Honours, says the says the United States. Yeah, as long as he agrees to it. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I mean, there, there will be an appeal from this that's already been signalled. 
um, whether or not the Supreme... I think the Supreme Court can decide whether or not it hears cases, the UK Supreme Court, that is. Um, one hopes that they would hear this case. Um, but ultimately, it's 10 years, more than 10 years now that Assange has been in one form of custody, either in the Ecuadorian embassy or in prison, um, for just publishing stuff that was sent to him. Mm. I mean, and that that have it's been published by just about every mainstream yeah. media organization in the world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And he provi- allegedly provided the capacity for these people to cover their tracks, but as has been pointed out in heaps of media, so does every mainstream media organization who advertises people to hand material to them. They all offer encryption, they all offer ways of interacting with them anonymously. Yeah. Bloody appalling. So the New York Times test is completely failed. You are listening to The Wigs live on Twitter Spaces, but also as a podcast, which it was originally broadcast to do. Indeed, indeed. I want to make a prediction. I think this is going to be overturned on appeal. Mm. I have hope, apart from the fact, apart from the judgment that the Supreme Court made in the Brexit case, which made me doubt their jurisprudence. Ladies and gentlemen, listening on Twitter Spaces, thank you for joining into the Wigs Live. And if you're on our original platform, podcasting, hello. We love you. Mm. We are moving on to topic number two, which is Felicity Graham. Please enlighten us all as to what is going on with whatever you're talking about. Is this the interruption <laughs> one? No. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I should have... Uh, no. I reserve what? my right to interrupt frequently Sorry, during <laughs> Stephen's presentation. I've got an intro topic. ready for that one, so it can't be that one. What? Okay. <laughs> no, Jim, you obviously read your brief. This is the topic about the nature of district wow. court it's been appeals. A busy week, okay, yes, of course, yes, and of course, yes. It's good interrupting, Jim. So, the Court of Appeal earlier this month resolved a very long-standing controversy about the nature of conviction appeals in the District Court of New South Wales. So, we have in New South Wales a system that. Um, has a number of different kind of appellate routes and rungs in the ladder. But one common one, um, given that over 90% of criminal cases are dealt with in the local court, is an appeal under the Crimes Appeal and Review Act to the district court before a judge sitting alone in their appellate jurisdiction. And the recent decision is McNabb and Director of Public Prosecutions, New South Wales, 2021, NSWCA 298. Very good. Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal. I missed that bit. Uh, And the court sat with the president, his honour Bell, and Justices Baston and McCallum, who have said various things about this in the past, but basically they quelled all of the controversy and it is now established that error is required to make out a conviction appeal to the district court under section 18 of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act. Hooray! (laughs) At least we know. I'm really happy about this. This is like such a nerdy topic and really hard to make interesting on a podcast. 
but I really like this decision. It's a great development. We've just lost five Twitter listeners. I can care on your first point, yes. Yes. (laughs) Jim left the room. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, it um, rejects earlier decisions of Genotsis and kind of affirms Dyson and Butterworth. Um, Thank God. Good. <laughs> you were worried it about Butterworth, weren't you? <laughs> Butterworth is on the Simpson in Can AG. you stop interrupting, please? Uh, I made an ignominious contribution to this, uh, this area of the law. Flick. Remember McKellar? Yes, I do. Yeah, she was just about to you before your interruption, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, um, I think there are a few things that we can take from this judgment. Um so, the nature of the error that's required to be shown is legal, factual, or discretionary error. Uh, secondly... Can I just give a bit of background before we go down this oh, road? sure. Just... Oh, oh, no. No, no, do. no, no, seriously. So, so... Hang on, we have some questions first. Do we? Okay. No, I'm just <laughs> Sorry. Riveting. Can I just say, if anyone's listening and does have a question, please don't forget to put your hand up. I'm monitoring it, and now Manny, please give us some. Background. And also, just like you can tweet under the tweet. If yeah. You, if you're if you're a little chicken to put your hand up, I get you that. Can, you can tweet. We've all been there. I've, I've Jim been will there. read out the question. We've he all will. Been there. I'll read out. Your you can even say what tone or style you'd like Jim to read it out in. Hand it over. Hand yeah, it over. as a chicken. So, so uh, you run your load report hearing, uh, you lose. You're sentenced. You appeal to the district court. There's a transcript of what you did in the dist- in the local court. And there's been some controversy. And at the end of the transcript, the magistrate says, well, look, I didn't believe the accused because he sounded like an idiot. And I believed the complainant because they seemed pretty solid to me. Yeah. So let me tell you about Mr. McNabb then, because that might yeah, actually yeah, yeah. help understand that. So he yeah. was a doctor. He d- pleaded not guilty to a charge of committing an aggravated sexual act contrary to part of the Crimes Act without the consent of the complainant. She was a patient and employee of the doctor. The conduct effectively was that he removed her underwear for a sexual purpose, the circumstance of aggravation being that he was in a position of authority over her. So there was no factual dispute that he had taken off her underwear but the issue in the proceedings was the purpose for him doing so. The Crown tried to prove um, and ultimately succeeded in proving that it was a sexual purpose. And the way that they proved that was essentially some evidence from the complainant as to what he had said, certain things that he'd said of a sexual nature immediately after removing her underpants. He um, also gave evidence said that he didn't say those things and gave a different version of events about what had been said and denied having any sexual purpose in taking off her underwear. So that was kind of the the way that the hearing ran below in terms of the evidence. The magistrate found him guilty, um, described the complainant as an outstanding witness um, and found that the conversation that she had alleged uh, which took place, that in fact did take place, and he, the magistrate below, this is a case from Lismore, didn't make any express findings about the accused's credit, but effectively it was by necessary implication the fact that he had rejected the denial by the accused because the magistrate had found that the complainant's evidence um, had in fact reflected the truth of the matter. 
So then he appealed. So was that held to be an error, not having expressly rejected the accused evidence? I don't know. I don't think it was run. Actually, I don't know whether yeah, it was run, fitting. but yeah. So he appeals to the district court and in times gone by, that appeal used to be a true rehearing where you'd call all the re- the, ev- the witnesses again and have, mm. a, have a second go at it. But now it's done on Under the transcript. The old justice, yeah. So no new witnesses come unless there's some special circumstance that gives rise to fresh evidence. The district court judge said... Uh, they didn't accept the accused's evidence as to lack of sexual purpose, regarded the complainant's evidence as coherent and compelling, also satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of the accused's guilt, and so dismissed the appeal. Then Mr McNabb brought judicial review proceedings in the court in the Supreme Court, uh, and the issues there were did the district court judge commit jurisdictional error by having regard to the magistrate's reasons and the magistrate's assessment of the complainant as a, quote, outstanding witness, whether the appeal to the district court under Section 18 of CARA was required to um, show error, and whether the onus remained on the Crown to establish an appeal, on appeal, rather, that the appellant was guilty beyond reasonable doubt. So... It's worth noting that there's a privative clause limiting the appeals from the district court to the court of appeal, which is why it's confined to jurisdictional error or some sort of legal, well, jurisdictional error. Um, I'd, it, the point, the, the, the confusion that seemed to have arisen in these cases is what is the nature of the appeal from the local court to the district court? Do we have to show error? What does error mean, right? And frankly, I don't understand how this confusion arose at all. It seemed to me like a bunch of lawyers, no, with with all with the greatest possible respect, Mr. Lawrence, because I understand you ran one of these. But it just active in this controversy. It just (laughs) it just seemed to me that everybody was overdoing it. Like you have to prove the case beyond the crown has to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt. The rest of us have to show error, and the judge can take into account what the magistrate thought of the witnesses. And that's right. where we landed in this case, isn't it, Fleet? Pretty much. I mean, the district court judge should still form their own judgment as to the facts yeah. in a rehearing, and the Crown still bears the onus of proof be- beyond reasonable doubt that there was the commission of a crime. The defendant does not bear a b- burden um, of proving a fact because it's an appeal, um, but... You still have to show error, but error may be only that the magistrate should not have been satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. That's right. Mm. And that's just a factual question. That's right. And like that's, if you've got a different yeah. view, then then there's been appellable error. Yeah. Because the appeal court has a different view of the facts. So yeah. if, so if, if not I, some yeah. high standard of error. And the other thing is, so legal error is arguable. So let's say you ran or even failed to run an evidentiary objection you can run it on appeal, mm. either again mm. or for the first time by way of a late objection. And if evidence that would have otherwise led to or contributed to a finding of guilt is excluded on appeal, then that might be the way in which that may be the pathway to uh, to winning. The thing that still seems open to me is the question of what happens when there is a legal error 
but no factual error. Are we in? Are we in the supreme? Are we in the court of criminal appeal territory where you say, well, notwithstanding the legal error, I still would have found them guilty? Say, for example, yeah, where the magistrate materiality. It, well, no, but let's say let's say the magistrate simply refuses. Sorry, simply fails to consider the evidence, or so, fails to say, for example, I reject the applicant's evidence or the the defendant's evidence beyond reasonable doubt, right? Which they're bound to do. Mm. They failed to. They failed to say that. Does that give rise to a successful appeal? And the answer to that, I think, is no. I think the judge is, despite the error, is then re- is nevertheless required to form their own view. Mm. So error gives you yeah. one way of looking at it. It's going to depend on the type of error, though, right? Well, I, I, and mean, I think this is one of the error. issues that came up in the controversy, which is to say that because the district court dealing with a straight-up conviction appeal has no remitter power... Yeah that that suggests on some analysis, which has now been um, not held to be the case, means that there's no um, error jurisdiction because if they find error, they can't send it back for redetermination by the local court. Mm. Mm. I think it comes down to, like, materiality, which is obviously more of a sort of notion of judicial review. But, all, but it does apply in, like, legal appeals where if it's an error of no moment, no ultimate effect on the orders, then it tends not to be upheld. Except, and this becomes, like, pretty subjective or qualitative, except when there's an error that means that there's been a miscarriage, sort of per se, even though you can't link it to the orders in a sort of obvious sense. I, mean, so I think what, you just enter a bit of a grey zone, don't you? It starts yeah. a bit in the eye of the beholder. It starts to get super complicated. So, say, for example, the magistrate expresses a view that the defendant's evidence was ridiculous and I, I reject... Uh, his or her demeanour was such that I can give no credibility to what they say, right? They express that view. The district court judge is entitled to take that into account. But what mm. if in the course of expressing that, they fail to take into account the good character in the Melbourne sense, right, of the defendant? So positive good characters led, that's something that affects his credibility or her credibility, and the magistrate fails that into account in assessing the credibility of the of the defendant. And so we're starting well, I think to that would be a trial not according to law and not a fair trial. Right, but then there's no remitter power. You'd win. Well, it, well, that that question is very difficult because I think what you're left with is the district court judge makes their mind up on the papers. Well, what yeah, about no, this? this? What about this? You've got to take into account the nature of the appeal, right? Because no, no, what about this? this is an appeal that requires the Crown to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So when you've got a judge reading a transcript and you've got the first instance decision maker not having taken into account good character, which was a matter capable of supporting credit, then you can't make the criminal standard, I think, because you haven't seen the witness. But what about this? Mm. The judge says, look, the proceedings below were so infected by procedural error that I am going to exclude the transcript from the proceedings on appeal, but I'm going to give leave to the prosecutor to run their case again. And basically you have yeah, you could give a leave hearing yeah. and you just run the whole case again in the district court. Yeah, And that's the obvious sort of answer to all of this, I think, in many cases. Like, if you've got a case where 
alibi evidence hasn't been properly considered or an error in relate an error of facts that was key to credibility, then we should see more instances of the Crown try to run their case again, right? Mm. Well, and the defendants, I mean, all the appellants. So mm. uh, his or her honour failed to take into account the defendant's credibility so that I intend to recall the defendant unless the Crown's done a concede... Well, I mean, I intend to recall the defendant on that for that basis alone, so that Your yeah. Honour can assess his credibility in light of the proper consideration of his good character. Mm, or yeah. and this is kind of a few that I've done because I. Sorry, Stevie. I was just going to say sorry, another example. The proceedings below, for example, are infected by bias. Now, commonly, people That's go up to the Supreme Court. Right? Yeah, but why couldn't you raise jurisdictional error? Exactly, because it ceases to be an appeal. Then I think. Like, I don't think you can cure bias, if this is what you mean. I don't think you can cure bias by recalling evidence. So, can In I In front just... of a new judicial officer who's not I don't affected think by bias. It ceases to be an appeal, doesn't it? Doesn't it cease to be an appeal, though? Mm. While we're all sitting here in kind of deep criminal law land, I'm just wondering whether or not anyone on Twitter wants to express a view as to whether or not this is interesting. Hello, Twitter. <laughs> Jump in and edit <laughs> us alive. Or just, just like send us a tweet going like, yeah, this is this is pretty boring, guys, or this is the most amazing thing that I've yeah, ever heard. Yeah, hit us up. I don't care. I don't care what they think. I know. I don't, I, well, that's right. We don't really care about what you think, but we want to hear you <laughs> anyway. our show. That's right. <laughs> Hang on. I'm jumping on. Hey, just I just want to say this. I have run every district court appeal that I've done for years Always identifying error. Me too. It's just I do it in yeah, writing. It always. just it helps your appeal. Like I, I this is why I've been uh, sort of astonished by all these appeals that have gone up to the to the Supreme to the Court of Appeal. But it's just like just do it right. Just set out the errors because it helps your case, and then argue yeah. that it's not proved beyond reasonable doubt as a backup. I, it, and yeah, sorry, go. Kind of disturbingly, I've had quite a few judges say to me. But error is not necessary. Error is not relevant. Yeah. And I'm like, don't confuse error is not required with error is not relevant. Yeah. Error can be very relevant We've because got- it can deprive the prosecutor of the ability to prove their case. Mm. Mm. We've got a, a reply here on Twitter. Uh, boring. Who's that? That's, um, <laughs> block them now. Block them. <laughs> oh, <it's>, uh, <laughs> That's fake. That's not real. <laughs> block them immediately. It's, uh, it's actually me. It's and Jimmy. report them. I will block them. You can't. Out of the studio. Removed. Don't worry. He's gone. Taken care of. Oh, you've changed. Jerk. Um, fantastic. Anything have anything, anyone have anything else to add to this uh, rather... In, in the hidden view of uh, criminal law that we've... Uh, I've been ch- tuning out on. Yes, Felicity has something to add. Go for it, Felicity. So I think we should talk about this issue to do with the magistrate's so-called advantage in observing witnesses' demeanour because they sort of dealt with this um, topic, which comes up quite a lot, I think, in district court appeals where the judge says, oh, but look at what the magistrate said about the witness. They said that they gave evidence in a way that made them appear to be so honest. Don't I have to just accept that? And so there's that case of Chirara, um, which similarly indicates that on appeal the district court should consider the advantage that the magistrate had in observing the witness's demeanour. 
and uh, but I think we should discuss some of the limitations to those advantages. Um, so there's a case of Fox and Percy. The High Court said within the constraints marked out by the nature of the appellate process, the appellate court is obliged to conduct a real review of the trial and in cases where the trial was conducted before a judge sitting alone of that judge's reasons, appellate courts are not excused from the task of weighing conflicting evidence and drawing their own inferences and conclusions, though they should always bear in mind that they have neither seen nor heard the witnesses and should make due allowance in that respect. And then citing Warren and Coombs... In general, an appellate court is in as good a position as the trial judge to decide on the proper inference to be drawn from facts which are undisputed or which, having been disputed, are established by the findings of the trial judge. In deciding what's the proper inference to be drawn, the appellate court will give respect and weight Mm. to the conclusion of the trial judge, but once having reached its own conclusion, will not shrink from giving effect to it. And then there's this sort of interesting issue to do with um, sort of more recent scientific research where the court went on to say further, in recent years, judges have become more aware of scientific research that has cast doubt on the ability of judges or anyone else to tell truth from falsehood accurately on the basis of appearances Um, Considerations such as these have encouraged judges both at trial and on appeal to limit their reliance on the appearances of witnesses and to reason to their conclusions as far as possible on the basis of contemporary materials, objectively established facts and the apparent logic of events. So So who's saying this? So that's in um, Fox and Percy, the High Court. Yeah, right, because I have not noticed the lower courts sort of complying with that. Yeah, look, I think there's a, there's a sense there's a sense amongst many defence lawyers, in particular, that the magistrates are, and I don't ascribe to this view at all, but there's a sense that the magistrates are clued in to the proposition that they can say that prosecution witnesses are compelling and believable, and the accused or defendant's witnesses are not, and they yeah. will say that in support of their judgments every time they convict. And I don't ascribe to that. I, I don't think that I, I don't think that magistrates are that cynical. But I know that there's a large Some number of defence lawyers who express that view. And I think there has been some concern in recent times that the district court, it, well, in in light of strong expressions from the local court about who they believe, the district court has felt itself either bound by it or, or has taken that as some sort of gospel mm. that alleviates them from the need to pass the details of the transcript that's before them when they're considering mm. the the matter. But and I think there's quite a distinction to be made between a magistrate's finding in general on credibility that they found a witness to be credible and findings that lead to that conclusion tethered to observations of demeanour in the witness box because the first conclusion doesn't necessarily have anything to do with demeanour and the district court judge is in just as good a position off the transcript, I think, usually, to come to their own conclusion about whether discrepancies or inadequacies in the evidence or the evidence is tainted or lacks probative value in some way such as to not make a finding as to credit or reliability 
rely that can be relied upon to the criminal standard. Certainly, in terms of inconsistencies, illogical things, things that don't match, things like that. There's no reason why a district court judge can't do that. I think that, and this is the nature of often its temple. Um, if not its temp quickly delivered judgments by local court magistrates is that there's a conflation of issues of credibility and reliability and demeanour and credibility and reliability and, and it can be difficult to unpack that from a transcript but I just again as you say Stephen you run the errors you run the argument on the transcript as to they're not the Crown having not proved its case and one way or another you get the point across to a district court judge you know. mm. Yeah, just to tie those two issues together, like I've done quite a few appeals a couple recently where I've gone through the adverse credibility or demeanour assessment that the magistrates arrived at in respect of some of the prosecution witnesses or the complainant and then the accused. And there's no basis whatsoever for this sort of adverse distinction that they've drawn. Mm. And their adverse views about the accused are either based on you know, mistaken views of the facts or a really unfair approach. Um, so, yeah, this focus on you need to, you know, like there's some recent authority that says if you're going to reject the accused, you need to state your reasons for doing that and state them clearly. Mm. And you, I've sort of seen that create a tendency towards really cherry-picking, which is... I'm going to make sure that I come up with three or four discrete reasons why I don't believe them, all of which completely fall apart under any scrutiny because you're just applying a double standard. That's a good thing. It's so, a good thing because you... They're, they're, well, because they it's reasons are explained and they're found to be wrong and then you win. Right? And then you win, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have some... And you just don't very often do no, don't. any... Like, I mean, I suppose... It's good interrupting, Stephen. <laughs> I'm allowed to interrupt on this topic. Okay, good. So we have some feedback on Twitter. Oh, yes. We have Mr. J. Can you talk... Uh, I've got to ask the question in a British accent. Can you talk... Can, can you talk more about defence tactics? Yeah? Can you talk... Can you talk more about defence tactics, yeah? The tactics, w- well... Yeah? I yes. say this on tactics. Yeah. So a tactic that I have used in these appeals is run error in order to show why the magistrate got it wrong. But you wouldn't flag those errors too far in advance because you'll get the prosecutor thinking about leading fresh evidence. Whereas if you if you just raise them orally on the day, which you're perfectly entitled to do, they generally won't have time to then think, well, geez, I better recall my complainant because the judge hasn't seen them. And these errors oh. seem quite material. Interesting. So I, that, I'm, that would I'm be a legitimate example of the best I'm of a different view, Stephen. I, I lead them hard in writing early on the hope that the Crown finds themselves in that position. Because I think if they're in the position where they're asking to recall, it's never happened to me before, but if they were in that position, all the better. I think that looks worse in front of the district court judge who's not gonna wanna let them to do not gonna wanna let them do that. And then you start having this argument about, well, we want to call more evidence. And if they lose that, well then you win. Right? That's true, but what about a case, like I did one recently, which was a sexual sort of underage sort of case, where the last thing you really want is, well, you can sort of get a sense of a case, right, where you think the last thing I want is this judge ever seeing this complainant. Well, sure. Because I fear that they might be as convinced as the magistrate was. 
Um, so yeah, it's horses, of course, isn't it? Yeah. Two quick addenda about two two other cases relating to appellate jurisdiction in the district court. Addendums. Addenda. Do we really use Latin plurals? I got um, told off well, by I a do. judge Data. for that once. <laughs> no datums. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, okay, Lewis and Sergeant Riley, which is a 2017 decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court in Court of Appeal. So no, that was that? Well, me and Jeremy no, Styles and Shane Prince. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a case where we were saying that there is a right of appeal from a magistrate's decision in a forensic procedure application, which is actually civil proceedings in the local court, for example, where the police want to obtain a suspect's <coughs> DNA for the purpose of a criminal investigation, we were arguing that there was a right of appeal from the local court to the district court. Up to that point in time, all appeals from magistrates' decisions on forensic procedure applications had gone to the Supreme Court under the statutory appeal that exists in the forensic procedures legislation. But we argued that the provision in Section 70 of the Local Court Act, which applies to application proceedings, meant that there was an appeal also to the District Court, and we won. But the reason why it's relevant here is because the mode of appeal in a forensic procedure appeal from the Local Court to the District Court is to be treated as if it were a conviction appeal... Um, under the Crimes Appeal and Review Act. In other words, this decision relating to needing to show error, Mm, etc., would um, presumably have some application, although obviously forensic procedure uh, applications are civil, so there's going to be some variation, presumably, in the way that it applies. Secondly, that other recent case, um, was it DK or LK of yours, Stevie, relating to sentence appeals? DK. DK. It's about sentence appeals and a Crown appeal against inadequacy of the magistrate's determination on sentence and the notion that there is a residual discretion in the district court. So even if they find error, that they might not increase the sentence because of other matters that are relevant, for example, delay the rehabilitation steps that have been taken since um, and so on. Welcome back to the week's ladies and gentlemen. We are ready to move into topic three with the enigmatic Mr. Stephen, his former worship, Lawrence. Take it away, sir. Mate, I'm uh, going sorry, to take topic. it away, Give sir. Give a sort of brief pricey about what it's about. Take it away, sir. <laughs> okay, I'm talking about... So, Stephen, can I... Sorry, sorry. What? No, go on. I'm not to be interrupted during this, okay? Right. Um, <laughs> if I'm interrupted, <laughs> this, I'll do a study into the interruption of gay men in the law, okay? Oof. Oh, mate, take that. So, <laughs> well... <laughs> So uh, I'm talking about the the interruption um, of women uh, advocates and judges in the High Court of Australia, Mm. which I think I've been specially chosen to do it as I'm such a good ally. Is that Um, a problem, is it? This... Uh, What? uh, Mate, well, yeah, it's sort of debatable. I've never been to court, I don't know. Spoiler alert, probably not. I've been interrupted four times so far. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, sorry, take it away. I'm doing it because of your personal characteristics, just in case you had any doubt. <laughs> um, okay, so the starting point of this topic is an academic article or study by a woman called Amelia Lowland, L-O-U-G-H-L-A-N-D, published in the Melbourne Law, June, Law Journal in 2019, called the inter- called Interruption Behaviour During Oral Argument in Australia. Now, her kind of premise was to examine three years of oral transcripts of arguments in the High Court and to look at the uh, the tendency to the uh, interruption um, of female judges and advocates. And the sort of premise for it, I think, came from an earlier study in America, which was a much sort of lengthier uh, time frame involved, but that was a study published um, in 2017 in the Virginia Law Review, which involved the examination of transcripts of 15 years of Supreme Court arguments. And that did find uh, very much so that women were not having an equal opportunity to be heard, uh, both in terms of advocates and justices. And some of the key findings of that American study uh, that preceded this Australian one was male justices interrupting uh, the female justices approximately three times as often as they interrupt each other during oral arguments. Um, In the last 12 years um, of the study, during which women made up on average 24% of the bench, 32% of interruptions were of the female justices, but only 4% were by female justices. Um, So basically a consistently gendered pattern um, and Bearing over time, obviously, with the amount of women on the bench, but uh, with that factored in, showing a pretty consistent pattern. Uh, so in the context of that earlier um, American study, um, this Australian one was done and basically found a gendered pattern, found that um, in the last year of the study that the three female judges received 69% of the total interruptions whereas the male judges um, only received uh, less than half of that. Um, The study considered possible uh, explanations for the disparity. Um, The simplest being that women create a greater opportunity for interruption by speaking more than their male counterparts. More than their male counterparts. However, the study found that female judges spoke roughly in proportion to the representation of their gender. Um, other possibilities were uh, the seniority of judges, meaning that deference might be afforded to senior judges, uh, but that uh, explanation was rejected by a comparison between uh, the seniority and the gender of judges. Inherent ways that females speak uh, was considered and rejected as an explanation. So basically, uh, the finding of this three-year study was that uh, there was clearly a gendered pattern. Um, However, the three researchers in 2020 produced an article that went in the Melbourne Law Journal, uh, sorry, UNSW uh, Journal uh, in 2020, and one of those three researchers uh, was one of the people that had done the American research, 
and they basically found that there was not a statistically significant sample in that three-year study and they did a much longer study which included 25 years of high court hearings and they basically found that uh, the pattern that had been found in the American study was not replicated here and they concluded uh, that female justices of the high court were not interrupted more than their male counterparts so that was in contrast to the findings of the Melbourne Law Journal article um so yeah, it's interesting. It obviously provoked a lot of study and her, I mean, her findings in terms of the disparity in that three-year three year period were supported by the later article, uh, but they looked at uh, the much longer period over 25 years and basically found that uh, the three-year period was an anomaly and that if you looked at the full 25-year period, um, it was not replicated. It sort of waxed so and suppose, waned, didn't it? So in the Brennan court... It waxed and waned, yeah male proportion of male interruptions was sort of always higher in the early days mm. of Gleason female justices were interrupted more but then it dropped and reverted to the other then in Fren- under French's court the male justices were interrupted more then there was sort of a period of it being about the same and then on the Kefal court it's again, seems to be female justices being interrupted more. I mean, it's just a very small study, right, in the sense that it's a really small court. Exactly. It's not that many hearings. I yeah. mean, you would sort of not expect it to be static. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really clear from, uh, from both of the studies was that male advocates interrupt more, a lot more than female advocates. Uh, but it's not targeted against male or female mm. justices. Um, so that was a very clear trend that was found. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of the upshot of those two articles. So basically what was found in the American research was not really found to be at play here, except that uh, there definitely is that tendency uh, for male advocates to interrupt more. Um, another sort of... studies... Sorry to interrupt, Sevi. Have there been any studies either at the higher court level or at lower appellate level where you might say it's sort of intermediary appellate courts where you might have a maybe a better gender representation somewhat between male and female advocates of interruptions by the bench of advocates in Australia? Because that was part that yeah, was a feature that of, this, of the, some of the American studies, but... Here it's only looking at interrupting judges, right? Which, generally speaking, is something that you're sort of trained not to do for the most part, aren't you? That, you know, when the judge starts speaking, you should shut up. Although I'm sure mm. that's sort of honoured in the breach. Mm. Doesn't a good judge sometimes invite interruption? Mm. Yeah. Right? There's sort of a premise here that it's bad, right? But I guess that needs to be sort of talked about. Well, I think that's sort of interesting. So some of the US studies have looked at not just kind of the pattern of interruptions, but what does that mean? What's the significance of an interruption? And one of the explanations or expositions was that when a justice is interrupted, when another judge is interrupted rather than an advocate necessarily, 
during either their questioning or kind of a, a statement that they're making, their point is often left unaddressed. And without being able to ask fully their question and without receiving an answer, the interruptee may be inhibited from using that point to persuade their colleagues on the bench. Mm. And mm. so it could be quite significant if there is a gender imbalance in the interruptions because that might then lead to a gender imbalance in terms of the capacity of the participants on the court to persuade their colleagues to certain views or clarify yeah, points that they see um, as important in a in a controversial case about you know a point that needs to be addressed by a particular party but which goes unaddressed mm. in the oral hearing because the judge is cut off. Yeah, and I mean, because, because this, this process in appellate hearings of questioning, you know, by the judges is often quite strategic. Like, they're asking particular questions at particular times to push the argument along. Mm. Um, so they're getting interrupted. It does interfere in that process. But also leaving things hanging, right? So I might express myself quite slowly in order to invite an interruption, mm. right? For, to have someone, like, is this what you're saying? And, you know, you don't have to finish the... Sometimes you can do that. So, prima facie, to my mind, the fact of an interruption as recorded... And I note that the first study didn't actually look at interruptions. It just looked at where there was three dashes in the High Court transcript and inferred from the, re- the recording of three dashes that that amounted to an interruption. Now, that's not right. You have to go back and listen to the audio if you're going to call that an interruption, because in every case, it's not that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of secondhand, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's meant to signify an interruption, but that's just someone's view. Well, mm. and it's not... I mean, it, it could be... Well, an interruption includes the non-finishing of a proposition that is put... It doesn't necessarily mm. mean that the person has been spoken over. And that's that's a, that's something that is not captured by the transcript, it's captured by the mm. audio. Mm. And if you're gonna go around doing a study like this, you better you better go look at it right. I mean, I have to say I hate this because in part I don't need some sort of statistical study limited to three years or twenty five years to understand that the hearing that women practitioners get before many courts is deficient, that they're not treated fairly in many circumstances. And I don't know that this kind of analysis based on statistics adds a lot to that debate and, on the contrary, kind of draws attention away by kind of suggesting that there's something inherently... Well, inherently is not the right word. It draws... It draw, it, 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 draws away from the from looking at the problems in a qualitative sense and reduces them to some sort of quantitative sense, which is there's all these interruptions and that's the problem. Well, no, the interruptions are a symptom of the problem and the problem is what well, the interruptions may or may not be a symptom of the problem. They probably are a symptom of the problem and the problem is that particular that women advocates are not being treated as fairly by the bench as they otherwise might be. So just in case I mean, any listener of the Whigs is, you know, got some skills in statistics or whatever, there was a a listener of the Slate's Political Gabfest that did an assessment of the interruptions of Emily Bazelon 
by the host of that show, David Plotz. And when she ultimately kind of did the whole analysis, it actually turned out that Emily was the biggest interrupter by far of the other two male speakers. But and to she your had point, approached it with the view that she was interrupted more often. Totally, like that was her subjective ex- experience yeah. of it. That, that was her sense of things. And people do often tell me that they think that you guys interrupt me more. Um, but you know, who knows? Bullshit. Well, maybe we I do. I mean, it just jars on some people, right? Like you hear what you you hear what bothers you, right? So you notice if you're being interrupted, but you don't notice maybe if you're if you're doing it, you know. And similarly. And this is what, you know, the woman who wrote that thing about Slate talked about in her analysis of it. She was like, I'm a feminist, and it kind of jars with me mm. when, I, when I hear a woman being interrupted. So, therefore, those are the things that I remember. Yeah. Um, and I don't sort of yeah. remember the other one. But, but to your point, Manny, she defined interruption. So, she listened to the audio of, I think, 55 episodes. Yeah. And she created an algorithm and wrote a code in R to do the analysis, but she defined an interruption um, as one person talks over another with the purpose of making their own point. Mm. Um, It may or may not cause the other person to stop talking and it excludes exclamations or conversational modes of emphasis like, right, yeah, that's interesting, kind of affirmation or agreement or yeah. kind of conversational mm. add-ons. No, but that, I mean, that, that, and that's precisely what I think the, the first one lacked is that kind of analysis. But, you know, and statistics can just hide things. Like, I suspect, I haven't done an analysis, but I suspect that statistically speaking, the least number of interruptions that occur in the High Court are to advocates from a non-English speaking background. Right? And that's because none of them appear, or there's, there's like one who appears every now and again. Mm. So, what are we to make of that statistic? Are we, oh, not, those advocates are doing great? No. There's an equity problem in terms of who's appearing and doing that work, and it's just not addressed by this kind of thing. And that's not to under, you I know. Think, yeah. <clears throat> I no, think this is based on some of these linguistic theories, right? About how language feeds into sort of power and domination and control and I think it's kind of premised on those theories which a lot of people would think is a bit one-dimensional, I think. I thought the second UNSW study also did their study based on the three dashes in the transcript, which is the way the interruptions are indicated in transcript speak. Yeah. Is that right, Rather than They probably would have had to, I suspect, because... I don't know that that recordings would be available. No, that's like, right. I'm pretty that. sure they did that did yeah. it on that basis as well. And you know, I I just worry about the lessons that are learned from this kind of analysis because again, by focusing on the quantitative, you lose the qualitative understanding of what's going on in that room. So mm. that the reasons for the interruptions may well be and may well be because of some sort of gendered issue but by focusing on the number you are unable to unpack that mm. you don't you not start you don't try and figure that out and uh, you know it might be the, an advocate and a judge finishing each other's sentences because they're in a furious agreement that's right yeah. no but even if it's not even even if even if we accept that actually there's a problem here that and, and I think I do accept it, particularly maybe not in the high court, I don't know, but particularly in the lower courts. I see plenty of female advocates. I see plenty of advocates from, you know, who don't fit the white mould, as it were, 
stood over, talked over by judges, their opponents and so on all the time. What about the other way? So in the local court, advocates more likely to interrupt a magistrate, for example, if they're a woman. Do you have any view on that? I I haven't spent enough time in the local court of late to kind of make an informed assessment mm. of that. I don't know. I mean, probably is the short answer. Mm. Partic- I mean, if, if I was to guess, I would say probably particularly with older advocates, but then they're more likely to interrupt all magistrates. Because mm. I whole. think youth is a factor for advocates as well. So I think if you're a young woman advocate, you're much more likely to be interrupted than an old male advocate. For my part, I've been the subject of interruptions and so on, but and I think I think on a racial basis, mm. particularly in some of the lower courts, and probably to my detriment. You know, I, I think to your client's detriment. To my client's detriment, right? And I think it's appalling, and I think. What do I do? I mean, I, I serve it back and I, I show it back, but it doesn't matter because it's happened. So the judges and the opponents and the people who are engaging this need to change their conduct. And I guess in the sense that this statistical analysis gives rise mm. to discussions like this, great. So, it's, so, it, sh- so it should be. Mm. But I think my fear is that what it leads to is then okay, we know that this is a problem. We then have this facile discussion based on assumptions about what it, you know, what, well, based on sort of theoretical aspects of, of what the academia understands about what goes in a courtroom, goes on in a courtroom, rather than let's have real change at the level of individuals who are the advocates and the judges appearing there. Mm. Representation has to matter, right? Because I think at the moment... The messenger definitely has an impact on the delivery of the message in the sense that, and the way that it's received, in the sense that a particular advocate with particular qualities is going to be permitted more to develop an argument without interruption or more to say what they want to say in the order in which they want to say it without the judge peppering them with questions that kind of don't necessarily logically relate to the uh, argument that's being articulated. And sure, you might just have to interrupt really yourself and, and answer a question. But if you were if you had if you were an advocate with the qualities that were just permitted to basically articulate your point and make the kind of three points that are necessary to then mm. advance um, a particular argument without interruption so that there can be judicial understanding of your case, um, then, you know, I, I think that is going to be impacted by the progress that's being made through representation on the bench, right? You, uh, so, for sure. like, well. at the moment, at least in the local court in New South Wales, it's about 50-50 on a gender assessment, um, other factors in terms of representation are not as well um, represented as kind of reflecting either the general makeup of the demography of the community or the makeup of practitioners, which obviously is also not necessarily 
reflective of the general community, although more so, I think, now. Do you find, Fleet, that you get a better treatment from male judges or female judges or magistrates? Oh, look, it varies. I mean, sometimes I think you can get quite... um, difficult treatment from female judicial officers no, I'm, 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 okay, in terms I'm, of interruptions I'm, I'm, there's no doubt about it, but I as mean, a woman I, I mean, mean if, if you were go- for you personally in your experience on balance which gender is more difficult for you if you're willing to express that view I know I'm putting you on the spot but because I, I, the reason I asked you is a lot of female barristers have expressed to me that they have a more difficult time in front of female judges than they do men Mm. Yeah, the women hating female judges is definitely a thing. Mm. Well, I don't know, but that's I've got no idea, but that's what's been expressed to me, and I wonder what... <laughs> I'm willing to call it out. It definitely is. I think that can definitely be an issue, um, but, yeah, I've had some pretty difficult male judges as well. Yeah. Who just are interrupting to the point of um, it making it quite impossible to advocate your client's position yeah. i mean you you know and you just have to keep going and 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 make your submissions and i think you know written submissions can be I've helpful that. in that way you know speaking to written submissions so you've you've got your submissions in writing so you've made them that can be i think quite a useful way of making sure that at least you're putting your case i mean but I've- i always like to be heard orally because that's when you can actually engage the judicial mind live and and answer those questions. And I have certainly found, and this was true particularly when I was not known to many judges, that if my opponent was a white-haired Anglo-Saxon man, he would be given a more easy road to making his submissions Mm. by many, not all, certainly not all, far from all, but by many judges, both men and women, would give him a more easy road to making their submissions than they would give me. And sometimes that may have been because of my youth, but sometimes there's no doubt in my... Like, I get up to make my... And sometimes it may have been because of the nature of my matter in my client's case. But there is no doubt in my mind that on certain occasions it was simply because in the back of the judge's mind, perhaps subconsciously, the position was taken, well, who's this guy who, you know, who's, making, who, who's standing up in front of me and doing this? And what I found is that once they've experienced me and they know who I am that goes away because they're accustomed to me making or even if I'm given the 10 minutes to make my opening submissions they're like alright this guy's not full of shit then they hear my submissions in a way that they might otherwise not now I don't know whether that's the experience of every advocate who's unknown to the bench mm. or whether it is something racial but it's certainly something that I've experienced more where my opponent looks the part of a barrister Ladies and gentlemen, welcome yep. back to the Wigs. What a fun Wigs it was, and it's the final Wigs for 2021. Great year. Great year. No? No? No one? Yes. What? 
<laughs> what a shocker. Right, it's over. Yes, mm. yes. Let's move into another catastrophe. Uh, we are moving on to fun things, the final fun things for 2021. And why don't we go, why don't we Why don't we bring the ghost in the room, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, your <laughs> former, his former majesty, whatever we call him. What do you call it? Worship. Your former worship. Uh, you can call him mayor, like in the American sense, oh, yeah, where the, you don't lose your title, Mr. Mayor. Mr. Mayor? Retired uh, man. No, we don't fun, have that here. What's your fun thing? Mayor. Unfairly. Uh, my fun thing is I'm officially retired from local government. We yeah. had the last government election for December. Great result in Dubbo. Well, um, but yeah. Who's the new mayor of Dubbo? So. Uh, mate, it'll be elected on Thursday. Uh, we watch this space. Today. Mm. we got big shoes to fill. Oh. There's been some illustrious names. Huge. <laughs> well done, Stephen. Great result. Congratulations to you. And I'm glad that you've given up the uh, whatever it is that you've given up. Mr. Emmanuel Kirkasharian, <laughs> what is your fun thing? Um, honestly, I haven't... So last year, Christmas time, my wife and I were on the run trying to get back to Perth. Oh, yeah. For right. a wedding that we couldn't get back to. So I won't bore you with the details, but mm. we had, a, in effect, a miserable Christmas thanks to COVID and various laws mm. and certain premiers of certain Western states of this country. Mm. Uh, mm. But <laughs> this year we're having a family lunch at my brother's house for Christmas. You've given up I'm on just, the West. You're just like, yeah, and I, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to it. You good. know, Omicron be damned. Yeah. God, Omicron. Yeah. Oh, oh, Omicron. Emmanuel Omicron. Oh, that's that's something I made up. It's very funny. Thank you. I'm take laughing it. on the inside. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. Well, that sounds like a fun fun thing. Yes. Congratulations to you. Congratulations to the Kekasharian family. God bless. Where's my invite? Come. You were, of course you're welcome. Uh, I knew you'd say that. That's why. You're crazy. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Bring the family. I'm now, I'm in, now, if you don't come... <laughs> It's embarrassing you. It's an insult. I love that. It's I'm an invited. insult. Of course, you're invited. Thank you very much. And the kids. Come on. I, I love you. I'm a close contact, but I can't come. But thank uh, you so much. What? I'm just, <laughs> Felicity Graham. <laughs> What's your fun thing? I've got three. Can I have three? Please. No. Go for it. Veto. <laughs> I don't have that kind of time. What do you reckon, right, Steve? Could you have three? Steve's like Steve's gone. Steve's gone. I'm out. See you, mate. Bye. Gone. <laughs> yep, no Merry worries. Christmas, Steve. Yep, see you later, Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> I think he has. No, he's still there. Okay, whatever. No, no, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Quick dive back in. All right, go for it, Flick. Okay, fun thing number one. Wigs fan asked... This is huge. ...about... No, well, this, this is not oh, that I got huge, it, I got it. but yeah, yeah, yeah. it is huge okay. for me. Um, a Wigs fan the other day... Remember we were talking about James's and Emmanuel's oh, and yeah. Stevens and, you know, all of that? Yeah. Yes. And I was telling a Wigs fan on Twitter about how once I was in an orchestra with four Felicities. Yeah. And they asked me what instrument I play, yes. and I said I'd let them know in fun things. What is it? I have recently started replaying my French horn. Hey! All right. I have to Google what the French horn is. It's some sort of instrument. Brass section. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've been playing with a little oh, look crew at that thing. up in Northern Rivers. Look at that. Um, we're performing New Year's Eve. No keys. Live. It's it's pure. Oh, no, there is keys. Three, Where are you performing? Three. Uh, in Lennox Head. Cool. Oh, yeah, Flick, that's awesome. And What's that's fun thing band? number one. What's we don't name? have a name yet. Oh, come on. Yeah, I know. We need Wigs is taken. We don't have a name yet is a great name for a band. Okay, fun thing number two. Post-COVID, it was my band name. Mm. That's a terrible name. <laughs> Go. Fun number thing two. number two, I have started playing water polo. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. How bizarre. I mean, great. I mean, I played it as a kid, but now oh, I'm playing you? again, and it's awesome. I've never met anyone who's played water polo before, ever. Yeah. Shout out to the Lennox Head water polo team. Local water polo team. You could probably make the Olympics. I reckon the pool, excuse the pun, would be quite low. There are some Australian players in the competition. Fair income. And what yeah. do they say to you? They go, well, you they thrash us. Oh, okay, right. Mm. But that's all right. It's really fun. And is it water deep? Can you walk? No. You actually do have to swim to the ball. Because yep. I'd do it if you could Egg walk. Beater. What does that mean? Is it, that's, it's that's where the you move your legs oh, in wow. egg beater fashion that's to, hardcore. to sort of sit up in the water. You didn't wow. want to do synchronised swimming? You're happy to do, happy to do water pond? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. This is the real fun thing. Okay, fun thing listen three. up, everyone. Take note. <laughs> we promised merch. Here it comes. It's coming. Just in time for Christmas. Well, just in time for Christmas <laughs> next year. <laughs> so 2022. Yeah. Christmas 2022. What is it? lapel pins yes wigs lapel pins finally they look so good lapel pins in the shape of wigs baristeel wigs a wig a wig wig wig. lapel pins yeah yeah so just watch this space get your order in as soon as they drop which will be very soon in the new year yeah okay sweet so watch out for the link for those of you listening it's a lapel pin that looks like a barrister's wig. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you can imagine that. Steve, concur? Yep, sounds very good. <laughs> just, make, very just turn Netflix off for five seconds while we finish the show, please. What's yours? James. Mine is I've started another podcast. Whoa. Oh my god, it's so good. Another it's so, one. I was going to mention this. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Minimal. Yeah. Excuse the pun. Uh, terrible name, great show. It's a it's an interview show. I sit down and talk to someone uh, awesome for about anywhere between half an hour to an hour. It's politics, it's music, it's film, it's literature, it's journalism. I'll talk to everyone. You had a fan of the Wigs on the show just recently. Who do we have? Richard Beasley. Yeah, Richard Beasley. Beasley. Beasley for lawyers will love that, right? Guys, I can't recommend listening to that episode enough because he is the and he has uh, accepted an invitation to be the fourth wig on a recording of the Wigs in 2022. For those who don't know, Richard Beasley SC mm. is the guy who wrote Hell Has Harbour Views. Great book. And you, which if you're a lawyer, you should read. Absolutely, right. Unless you're in a corporate law firm, in which case it'll probably make you want to kill yourself. It's like watching Wake and Fright if you live in Broken Hill. Wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) That's right. That is well put. I've done that and it was horrifying. (laughs) That is very well put. What's your word on um, Hell Has Harbour Views, Lawrence? Oh, it's a great book. Yeah, I loved it. I read it years ago. How cracker is it, eh? It's so such a good young. Yeah. So he was one. He was my last guest, or the guest before my last guest. We've had John Safran on talking about his new book. Uh, we've had Chris Bowen talking about what it's like to be the treasurer of the country. We've got some huge guests coming up. Check out Minimal. I'm doing. I'm dropping an ad. Drop it, man. Do I'm it. Sorry. Drop it. I love Minimal it. Minimal of the podcast. Okay, the sister podcast to the Wigs. Check it out. It's like if Joe Rogan knew how to do a podcast, it would be like that. Is it minimal with no A or it does have an A? It has an A, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Minimal two Ns. So it's minimal, the word minimal. Chuck an extra oh, N an extra in there. N, that's yeah, play on M-I-N-N-N? the M-I-N-N-I-M-A-L. Minimal, as in Jim Minimal. Yes. Where's Terrible. the extra N? In the min Oh, bit. I see. I yeah. see. I know, and, and I regret get it. get rid of the um, S. Yeah, yeah. So it's not minzimal, it's minimal. Yeah, terrible name, <laughs> uh, but I'm stuck with it. So... I love it. 
Thank you very much. Look, ladies and gentlemen, it's been great to chat to you for the last time for 2021. Moving into 2022, hopefully we'll have some good news. We're definitely going to have some good episodes for you. Everybody who joined us on Twitter Spaces, thank you for spending your Tuesday night with us. It was great to have your company. Look, well, just everyone have a great time. Merry Christmas. At least have a great time. At least have a happy new year. That's all we can ask. Thank you very much. See you in 2022. for listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mitts